You're tuned into Finding Your Frequency with hosts Jeff Spinard and Ryan Treasure. Connect with the show. Call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Welcome back to Finding Your Frequency. I'm your host, Jeff Spinard. And I'm your co-host, Ryan Treasure. And we have a very special guest with us today. Mr. Frank Shankwitz is best known as the creator and a founder of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, an extraordinary charity that grants wishes to children with life-threatening illnesses. From humble beginnings, the Make-A-Wish Foundation is now a global organization that grants a child's wish somewhere in the world on an average of every 28 minutes. That's amazing. That's impressive. Frank is a U.S. Air Force veteran and has a long and distinguished career in law enforcement. He began as Arizona Highway Patrol motorcycle officer and retired a homicide detective with the Arizona Department of Public Safety with 42 years of service behind him. That's a lot. That is. Frank has been featured in numerous publications and television shows and received several awards, including the White House Called the Service Award from the President, Mr. George W. Bush. W. Yeah. <laughs> in 2015, Frank joined six U.S. presidents, as well as Nobel Prize winners and industry leaders, as a recipient of the Ellis Island Medal of Honor of Public Services. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome to the show a Arizonian, much like ourselves, <laughs> Mr. Frank Shankwitz. Frank, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for having me on. Oh, you're quite welcome. You know what, Frank, the accolades that I could have kept reading for at least another 20 minutes, uh, but I wanted to get some time to talk to you. Okay. <laughs> so, finding your frequency has always been about, you know, talking to uh, professionals and just just great people all across this country to find out how they found their frequency. Uh, you've done some great things in your career. Where did that all start off, Frank? Well, it started out in a childhood, a very, I guess, unusual childhood for my, people might consider. Um, when I was two years old, my mother abandoned me and um, uh, left me with my father. Uh, when I was five years old, she kidnapped me off a playground and for the next five years eluded my father who was always trying to find me ended up in michigan and it was a very very i guess traumatic childhood we lived in a tent we lived in a, our car there was food was always an issue she would work for two weeks in one town leave just so my dad couldn't find us wow but, but eventually at, at 10 years old uh we ended up in a little town, Sligman, Arizona, up on Route 66, oh, yeah. where she completely ran out of money, ran out of everything, and a ranch family took us in. And a little town of Sligman then was predominantly uh, Mexican Indian. It was a railroad town, a, a ranching town. And uh, people just started taking care of us. And a mentor of mine uh, named Juan Delgadillo, who, who founded the uh, iconic snowcap up in Sligman, Arizona, which is still packed today, even though Juan has passed away, became my father figure. And I, I started working full-time as a dishwasher at 10 years old. But Juan just said, Frank, when you can, give back. And I said, Juan, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. We can't even afford to eat. How can I possibly give back? Right. 
And Juan said, you don't have to have money to give back. He said, look at Mrs. Sanchez. She's always bringing you and your mother beans and tortillas. Just she has something to eat. But look at her yard. It's full of weeds. She's a widow. You can go and clean up that yard. You can help Mr. Ortega paint that old wrecked caboose that they're trying to make into a family yeah. home. So he taught me that whole thing of giving back. And I just kept that lesson my whole life. That is a great lesson to learn, and you absolutely uh, keep giving, that's for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. When I read stories about people giving back, and you know, um, I'm, I'm an avid sports fan, so I'm always reading about what kind of you know give back sports and celebrities folks are doing. And you know, uh, uh, the guy from the Arizona Diamondbacks, uh, Paul Goldschmidt. Yeah, sixty-two home runs, maybe. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> he, uh, one of his things, you know, was that way when he came up from uh, from the minor leagues, and you know, he just started donating his time to the Phoenix Children's Hospital, uh, and and that was one thing that had always resonated with me about, you know, you know, you, that's right, you don't have to have money to give back. You right. can donate your time and you know help out your community and 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 really give <laughs> back in that capacity. So that's just a fantastic lesson to learn, and you know, hopefully imparting that knowledge on all of our listeners to give back as well. For sure. And yeah, Frank, it's so simple. It's so simple. Just just try and take care of somebody else. You know, you have that built in within you. It shows throughout your career. Um, you know, from a child that, you know, was on the run with his mother, uh, learning valuable les- lessons to help other people. Uh, now you uh, joined the military at some point. Is that correct? Yeah. After, after high school, I, I joined the Air Force and... Uh, I wanted a college education. I could not afford it, so I thought I'll take advantage of hopefully the GI Bill. Right. And uh, spent uh, it was Vietnam era, but they sent me to England, and uh, I spent a majority of my Air Force career in England. And then coming home, um, did take advantage of the GI Bill, moved down to the Phoenix area, and uh, went to work for Motorola because they were hiring the veterans. They wanted to hire the veterans. And because of the work ethic, and uh, that was the hippie generation. <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking the, the middle 60s, and, and the, the veterans had the work ethic they were looking for. And Motorola encouraged the college courses, assisting with the GI Bill, and it was just a great environment to work for. Uh, but I became very bored with that. I was, I was a statistical engineer, and several of my uh, classmates from high school had joined the Arizona Highway Patrol, and just kept kidding me. So why don't you join it? That's an adventure. You're kind of an adrenaline freak. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, see, see, see what you think about it. So on a whim, I just applied for it. And that particular uh, hiring process, there were 10,000 applicants, and they chose wow. 50. And, and you were uh, one of the 50. And I was one of the 50, and it just began this great, very fortunate career that I had. Yeah, that's awesome. I was reading in some of your information that uh, you ended up being a, a motorcycle patrolman as part of a new tactical unit. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, it was. Uh, this is now in the early '70s, and it was a ten-man uh, tack unit that worked the whole state of Arizona. Two weeks in one town, two weeks in another town, and uh, it was during this time that the TV show Chips became very yeah, popular. Right, right. And if and if their listeners don't remember that, it was the adventures of two California. I would yeah. motorcycle officers, Ponch and John, and the kids loved it. <laughs> the, the children from the ages of like the 6 to the 14 just loved that show. And when we went into these little towns all over Arizona, it was always our two-man unit, just like chips. All of a sudden, the children are waving at us. Hey, Ponch, hey, John. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, and, and we took advantage of that. I asked permission if we could go to the grade schools and talk to the kids about bicycle safety, which the kids could care less about. They just wanted to get on the motorcycles. But it was a great PR tool. All Absolutely. of a sudden, the children weren't afraid of the police officers anymore. Yeah, you know, that's awesome that you guys did that. And I can uh, I, I can actually speak from experience in this when um, I think I was probably five or six years old and my mom took me to uh, one of the places where the Arizona Department of Highway Patrol was going to be at with the motorcycle crew. Right. And I have a picture of me sitting on a, a, a DPS uh, like a motorcycle back, in the, back in the 80s. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. So when did the highway Thanks, patrol uh, turn into a homicide detective? Well, I, I did uh, 11 years with the uh, uniform and then um, got promoted to detective, and that was in the mid-'80s. And my first assignment was in narcotics, working in undercover narcotics, and then eventually general investigations, and from there was promoted to homicide detective and spent the majority of my career uh, working out of homicide. Now, Arizona, they say homicide for DPS. The smaller towns and cities around Arizona do not have their own homicide unit. So as the state police, they would call us in to do the investigations. Okay. I, I would imagine that's got to be uh, a very, well, I hate to say interesting career, but, I mean, what what's it like being, you know, a homicide cop? Well, it's, it's um, challenging, exciting, especially the chase. Yeah. Trying, trying to... First of all, who is the suspect in the uh, case, and then where is he finding him? And literally, we're, we're all over the United States working with other state police agencies in trying to locate our suspects. It's got to be one heck of a feeling, though, when you bring forth to justice somebody like that that's like the worst of the worst of criminals. It, it is, and especially it brings closure to the family. Exactly. That, exactly. That's the most important part, bringing closure to the family. Which is absolutely a pattern with you, you know, get, you know, ma- making sure that you're helping someone uh, to satisfy a need. So, you know, kudos to you on that. Um, now, moving, you know, from uh, a great career uh, in the police force, uh, you're not done yet, not even close. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a new career going on. <laughs> so talk to us about um, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. When do you get into the Make-A-Wish Foundation? Well, uh, and, and I have to back up a little bit. Um, in 1978, when I was on that motorcycle tax squad, I was involved in a high-speed chase over in the Parker, Arizona area uh, with a drunk driver when another drunk driver pulled right in front of me. And I hit him broadside at 80 miles an hour. Uh, on a, on a bike? Crash, yeah, on the motorcycle. Ooh. People said the crash was spectacular. Um, I was pronounced dead at the scene. Ooh. My partner could not revive me. Um, and an off-duty emergency room nurse just ignored his orders. And <laughs> obviously I'm talking. Kept working, worked for right. four minutes and brought me back to life. And it Thank took the about Lord six for that months. moment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it took about six months to recover from that accident. And during that time, I said, why was I spared? Every police officer I've ever worked with, including myself, believes in a higher being. Why, why did God spare me on this? And then it was in 1980 where I'm back to work riding motorcycles, and I receive a call from our commanders that a U.S. Customs agent named Tom Austin had befriended a seven-year-old boy named Chris. And Chris had terminal leukemia, only a couple weeks to live, and he contacted our department because Chris 
his heroes were Ponch and Sean from mm-hmm. Chips. And he told his mother, when I grow up, I want to be a motorcycle officer like Ponch and John. And I wish, that was that first time we heard that word, I wish I I could meet a motorcycle officer. So our department got very involved. I just happened to be the one that they chose to meet this little boy um, because of my work with the children around the state for the years prior. And I had no idea what to expect. Uh, Our helicopter, with the permission of his mother and doctors, went to his hospital in Scottsdale, picked him up, and flew him to our headquarters building in Phoenix, where I was standing by with a motorcycle. And we had initially trained with California Highway Patrol. Our equipment, our uniforms were almost identical, except ours obviously said Arizona. Mm-hmm. And this helicopter landed, a little pair of red sneakers jumps out, runs over, hi, I'm Chris, can I get on your motorcycle? This little boy is just ecstatic. And he had watched Chip so much that he knew every switch and button on that motorcycle. This is a siren. Can I turn it on? These are your red lights. These are the flashes. What's in your saddlebag? That's great. Same as Punch. <laughs> and I'm looking at his mother, and she's got tears in her eyes. And uh, at first, I, I couldn't figure it out. Then it dawned on me, she has a seven-year-old boy back. He's having fun just like a typical seven-year-old. And this yeah. little boy had just come off the hospital from IVs. Ah. But Chris went on that day to become the first and only honorary Highway Patrol officer in the history of the Highway Patrol. Now, this is 37 years ago, complete with a uh, a certificate making him a full police officer, his own badge. Uh, We had a custom-made uniform for him. But more important, his motorcycle wings. That was the big thing for him, the uniform wings. And unfortunately, Chris died a couple days later. And we learned he was going to be buried in Illinois. My commanders asked if I would go back with another motorcycle officer and give him a full police funeral. Our commander said, we have lost a fellow officer, which we did. And we were joined by Illinois State Police, City Police, County Police, that all gave this little boy a full police funeral. He was buried in uniform. His grave marker reads, Chris Gracious, Arizona Trooper. But flying home, I just started thinking, there's a boy who had a wish, and we made it happen. Why can't we do that for other children? And that's when the idea was born. It's a brilliant idea. Uh, you know, it's been giving for so many years. Yeah, the foundation has become just, you just, just huge. I mean, you guys are you know making wishes. I believe it's every twenty eight minutes. That, that, that's an astounding figure to me. Yes. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the. Uh, um, Phoenix office gave me a new figure that now in 37 years, because it's now a worldwide foundation, and we have granted in the last 37 years 415,000 wishes. Oh, my God. That's amazing. That, yeah, that, that to me, we're approaching that half million mark. And it's a shame that there are that many children that have that life-threatening illnesses, but at least the foundation is there to give them a little hope and joy and comfort you know it's it's one of the one of the most awesome foundations you know even from you know from my perspective just because i have a personal touch on this when i was 11 years old there was a little boy who lived like you know three or four blocks away from my house and um, i'd always just like ride my bicycle around the neighborhood and i would always see his mother they didn't have a vehicle so she was always walking to the store which was you know a half a mile up the road and getting their groceries and and things like that and so you know 
uh, as my mom had always told me, to help out the neighbors when I can. And so, you know, I, I actually met her son because I was helping her take groceries back to her house and had them all, you know, all on my bike and stuff and taking them over to the house. And I met this little boy, and, you know, I think he was seven and I was 11. And uh, the, the thing that was so cool about it was, you know, he had leukemia. And, you know, I got to know him very well and would come over and help out. And um, I remember the day that he got his Make-A-Wish wish. And, you know, they showed up at his house and he loved video games. And, you know, his wish was to, like, play every video game that he really liked. And I remember <laughs> I remember uh, Atari and Nintendo showed up at his house in their little Atari and Nintendo cars and literally brought him every single game that Nintendo or Atari had ever made and the consoles to play all of them That's and just cool. donated all of that. And, you know, just like Frank was saying, you know, seeing, you know, the mom you know, so excited that our kid was being able to be a kid at that time. I, I got to, I got to witness something similar to that when I was growing up. And it was uh, one of the most profound things that like I ever felt as a human being, even to this day, you know, just kind of seeing all uh, of that. So highly impactful. Yeah. For sure. Just, just the, the sheer happiness that that provides to those families is absolutely amazing. Yeah. I always like to call it miles of smiles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, a, a fitting, uh, uh, tagline. Now, Frank, we're going, uh, okay, so you have uh, a fantastic career uh, in law enforcement, uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation, uh, you know, for 37 years and 415,000 granted wishes. I mean, that's just an amazing number that blows my mind. Um, You're now making a movie, I understand, kind of documenting your, uh, your life. Well, yeah, it's very flattering. I was approached by Hollywood, as we call it, yeah. <laughs> about four about four years ago. I, I was giving a keynote speech at a uh, uh, convention in San Diego, and the gentleman came up to me and he said, uh, "I'm the owner of Triple uh, Three Films, and we want to do a feature motion picture on your life." And I kind of heard in my mind, "We want to do a documentary." And, well, okay, we'll just do a short documentary. You should know, we want to do a feature motion <laughs> yeah, this picture. Yeah, a short documentary, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it kind of took me aback, but it's very flattering, very humbling, and uh, we've been working on this now for four years, and I say we because they've got me very involved. I help with yeah. the screenplay, um, help with the locations, and we actually start filming up here in northern Arizona in the Prescott area. Awesome. Next Wednesday is the first day of shoot, September Excellent. 6th. Whoever decided to shoot that in Prescott was the smartest human being on planet Earth because <laughs> that place is beautiful. I have family that live up there, and uh, it's it's very great and fantastic. I love that well, place. Well, thank, thank you for complimenting on that because I, I pushed it. <laughs> that was you, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, they, that, wanted a, they wanted to film in the Phoenix area, obviously where everything originally happened, but uh, again, because of the heat, because of the cost of permits, yep. and because this is my hometown, the uh, city of Prescott, the Yavapai County Board of Supervisors, Frank, what do you need? We'll just give it to you. We'll waive the permit fees. Awesome. Uh, and plus, it's featuring the town. We're bringing a lot of money yeah. into the town. Of course. Uh, the town helped me when I was a teenager. Uh, so now I'm giving back to the town that helped me. I follow you on Facebook and I thought it was just amazing. I've been watching like the, they do like casting calls for folks and then Frank will put out a post about, you know, the people that are coming in to cast for the movie and all that. And um, Frank, as you know, I'm like uh, an Arizona native and love all things Arizona. I've been here my whole life. So when I, uh, you and I and Jeff, we kind of crossed paths a little bit earlier in the year with the city gala summit and all those events that were happening and rock against trafficking 
back in LA. And, oh, uh, sure, and so yeah. that's, that's where you and I connected on social media. And so I've been following you ever since then. And uh, it's just awesome to see that all of this is happening in my home state. <laughs> <laughs> it is cool. And Frank, you know, I've, uh, I've known you for years. Well, when I, you know, we don't call each other on the phone and hello and all, but I've known you for years from different events and, you know, uh, with, uh, Especially even on the influencers channel, you know, uh, Clarissa Burt, she's a friend and she's been, I've known her for 10 years and she's very good friends with you and, you know, Greg Reed and the Dan Clarkson, you know, you are involved uh, in an organization uh, where you're continuously out on the road speaking and just helping people to move their career paths forward. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, again, I'm so fortunate. I was at a, a Make-A-Wish event in San Diego area, and, uh, in fact, it was Greg Reed that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, because I've been a keynote speaker for Make-A-Wish for their galas, their uh, fundraisers, meet-and-greets for years. And he said, how much do you charge for your speaking events? And I said, well, I don't charge for Make-A-Wish. It's, it's our organization. I love it. He said, no. He said, on your own speaking events. And I said, well, I've never done that. And he said, why not? We're going to change that. Yeah. And uh, Greg has mentored me, and I thought, well, it's just on a whim. I'll go ahead and do it. But it's turned into this whole new career, yeah. as you said, where I'm just all over the country uh, doing the keynote presentations. And my whole message during a presentation is everybody can be a hero. Yeah, that's a great and, message. And just, just why we're talking about here, how you can help out your community. And, um, yeah, they're just keeping me all over the place. I've got a new booking agent, a gal out of Iowa, that uh, she's upset because we're going to have to shut down for a month for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Maybe that's, yeah. time, maybe that's when she can take a vacation. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's just great. So, you know, as we move through, you know, some more of your story and some of those things that you're, you're working on, you know, we talked about Arizona and some of those different things. And uh, I know you're, you're extremely tied to Arizona, as, as I am as well. Just, just on a whim, like, what is, other, other than the Prescott area, which I know you love, what is your favorite thing about the state of Arizona outside of other places that you've been, and why did you stay here? Well, the, the, the diversity of the state, and especially um, when I was a motorcycle officer, like I said, we worked the whole state of Arizona. Border to border, all the four borders, just name it, and the diversity from the Indian reservations down to the vineyards, uh, down in the southern Arizona to the Sonoida area, to the Flagstaff area, the Grand Canyons. In fact, I was a river runner for part time through the Grand Canyon and got to know that very well. Uh, but just the diversity. Now, I, I like the Jackson, Wyoming areas and the California beaches, but just Arizona is home. I, I live at the base of Granite Mountain, so I look up at an eight foot thousand mountain every day. Oh, that's great! Yeah, yeah. I, I I try to go over and uh, get fishing over there at uh, at Prescott as much as I possibly now, can. Your wife and family mm -hmm. are pretty much natives. Go pretty deep with Arizona. Is that correct? Yeah, Frank was talking about the Grand Canyon. My uh, my wife's a sixth generation, and her family came here from uh, from back east. Um, you know, in the eighteen hundreds, and her grandfather is William Wallace Bass, uh, which was the very first white man to settle inside the Grand Canyon, and he 
blaze the trail from the North Grand Canyon to the South Grand Canyon and helped the Indian uh, community down in Havasupai establish a trading route uh, that had never been there before. And, uh, you know, really interesting part of uh, our family's history uh, as my wife and I had a daughter four years ago. And, you know, now she's part of the seventh generation of Arizonans that are, you know, all of that. So just, just you know, that history with that my wife has and me being a native, uh, you know, I feel exactly the same way as you. And I've literally been all over the country with Voice America and also in the military. Uh, and of all places that I've been, I always just keep coming back to Arizona and I could never see myself living anywhere else. Uh, if anything, I just need to get out of Phoenix and, and get, get, get into a rural area where I feel a bit more comfortable. Yeah, what, yeah, <laughs> not, not being a native and not growing up here. Yeah, I grew up in Rhode Island, uh, but I lived in Las Vegas for six years, Beverly Hills for a couple of years. I've been I've now been on the West Coast longer than I grew up in the on the East Coast. But what I like about Arizona, I'm starting to get a little uh, angry with the heat, but you know, <laughs> that's why we got to I'll still take that over snow, but it's just any 2 hours in any any direction is something different. Uh and you know, if you want to see change of scenery, uh you know, if you want snow, if you know, yeah. it doesn't matter what you if you want good camping, doesn't matter what it is you're looking for. Within an hour to four hours in any direction, uh, you could be over the border enjoying a uh, tequila sunrise uh, in Mexico, or four hours north you could be in uh, uh, Vegas gambling. I mean, there's just so much that you can do. Uh, outside and inside the states. Yeah, all we need now, Jeff, is we need the L.A., Las Vegas, Phoenix Hyperloop. <laughs> I'm telling you. Well, you know, maybe Frank can get that done for us. <laughs> well, it, it, it's so funny. It's so funny here in Prescott. There's bumper stickers, uh, no Cal, because we have so many California people moving over. And then let's put the cowboy back in Prescott. Yeah, absolutely. Because the California people are coming over and wanting the... Uh, wine bars, the sushi shops, and so on. So it's yep. just kind of fun up here. They, it, as long as they can just keep everything, like the inside of the A1 Palace, we'll be all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, in fact, we're filming there. We're, uh, we're doing a couple major scenes inside the palace. That's yeah, cool. That's my favorite place to go to when I visit Prescott as an as a eating establishment to go have a couple of beers. And, uh, Jeff, if you haven't been there, I would love to take you there. It's really cool. They, oh, have, they have, like, Doc Holliday's gun on the wall. and like uh, all see, these, I would dig all yeah, that and they, stuff. they have all these really cool uh, things that the guys used to use back in the 18 and early 1900s, like how they cheated at cards with the little pieces that go up their <laughs> sleeves. And, you know, so they have all that laid out in the A1 Palace. And then, of course, they have fantastic steak. Cool. Well, I, <laughs> I'm in for that trip. Frank, uh, going back to the movie, uh, what's it like to be on set making a movie about yourself? Well, we I'm not on set yet, but we're starting all the set design. Okay, that's Wednesday. And, and, and Yeah, and, and they've hired me as the technical advisor, so I will be on set every day. It uh, sounds exciting, but it's the more, most boring job in the world. <laughs> <laughs> you sit there for 12, 13 hours, and uh, you look for mistakes. Yeah, and and as mistakes and police procedures and mistakes and movie Frank versus real Frank and uh, movie Kitty, who is my wife girlfriend at the time, yeah, versus and uh, but it's exciting to watch, especially uh, it, it looks so um, I can't think of the word like it's not really happening on film. How how could this possibly be a movie? Right. And then when they start doing the dailies and just start the minor editing and then do the final editing, all of a sudden you got this wild, this picture. Let's hope wild is a good picture. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. 
I'm excited about uh, about the show for sure, about the movie. Yeah, you know, if you guys need any uh, audio help on set, just let me know. I'll be I'll be glad to drive up. <laughs> uh, I understand. Who is uh, who's doing the production for the movie? It's uh, Triple Three Films, which is owned by Greg Reed. Okay. And, um, there you go. Yeah, we've got we've got executive producer named Mark Gold. The director is Theo Davies. An Englishman, but uh, I forgive him for that. Since I was stationed <laughs> in England, so. <laughs> but uh, it's kind of a fun cast, especially um, when we talked about chips earlier. Um, Larry Wilcox has a minor role, okay, and then uh, Robert Pine, who played Sergeant Crutter in Chips, has a major role, a starring role awesome. in the movie. Oh, that's cool! So we're just bringing that whole connection back together. I suggested. Uh, that the casting contact them, and I never thought they would accept, and they did right away. Nice. So, and then we've got guys like uh, uh, Tom Sizemore, a major role in there. Yeah. Remember Saving Private Ryan of and course. other adventures? Yeah. Yep. Uh, Pat O'Brien, Dale Dickey, um, just some nice names in there. Is Tom Sizemore playing you? No, no. We have a young man, and it's a period piece from 1950 to 1980. Yeah, I saw that guy's the, picture. He looks pretty good in a cowboy hat. Yeah, the uh, the actor playing me has to be in the mid 30s. Yeah, and a gentleman, his name is Andrew Steele, out of Australia. Okay. He's uh, he's very popular in Australia, but this is his first U.S. production. That's awesome. And, and like, yeah, like you said, he looked very good in a cowboy hat, so that was a must. He had to be good. Yeah, I think I saw, <laughs> the, I saw the picture when you had come out on social media, and you were like, this is the guy who's playing me. And I was like, right on. He looks like a cowboy. That's perfect. <laughs> Frank, with all of this going on, I mean, you've done so much in your lifetime. Uh, what's next? Well, the, the speaking circuit is just going to take off right now, and I'm happy on that. I, I, I don't want to retire. I don't want to just sit around. And uh, we're already getting all the requests for, um, especially a lot of back east appearances. Yeah. To uh, right when the movie is finished filming, that we can talk about that and then spread the message. Everyone can be a hero. Well, you know what, Frank, I want to thank you for joining us today on the show. It was a real pleasure to have you. And one of these days, uh, I am going to keep hounding you to do a, a show on the Influencers channel. Yeah, and Frank, the next time that uh, you come up to Phoenix, ping Jeff, let us know that you're here. We'd love to go, you know, catch a lunch Absolutely. or, you know, just hang out and say hello. Uh, you know, as you know, our office is just right here uh, in, in Phoenix over by the airport. So uh, when, you, when you come on down, uh, down the hill, let us know. Yeah, and especially when it cools off down there a little bit. I'd be yeah. more than happy to. Yeah, October. <laughs> yeah, we'll see you in I'll late October. On that one. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, Frank, thanks. Uh, before we go, uh, is there any URLs or anything you want to push or promote before uh, we wrap up here? Well, yeah, thank you for allowing me to do that. I've got a book that came out. Uh, the movie is based on this book, based on a true story. Uh, Hollywood, if it was a true story, it would be a documentary, so Hollywood exaggerates a little bit. But the book is called Wish Man, just like the movie, and it's available on Amazon. And then people can go to my website, wishman1, the number one, dot com. Wishman1.com and follow awesome. the adventures of the movie, what I'm doing. And then I'm on Facebook, too. Just follow me on Facebook. Yep, yep. interesting yeah. stuff on Facebook as you talk about that. Again, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Shankowitz, the uh, founder of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. You guys can go get his uh, book, Wishman, and, of course, check him out online at wishman1.com. Follow everything Finding Your Frequency at findingyourfrequency.net and, of course, all over Twitter at Radio Ryan 1, at Jeff Spinney 2. And you guys will uh, come right back after these messages 